This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, finding the future of superannuation, why the government's considering changes to your retirement fund. Could super reforms target excessively large balances or stop workers dipping into their savings? I'm a millennial and I'm seeing a lot of my friends that have been priced out of housing saying, well, why can't I use my super? I think they should be allowed to dip into it depending on the circumstance. Yeah, I think it should be preserved because I don't think people can be trusted. If the temptation is there to take it out early, they will, and then they'll be caught short when it's really important. And the federal government to consider banning manufactured stone products as unions and experts warn of its deadly consequences. The best information we have is that between one in four and one in five people who have been working with artificial stone will develop silicosis. It's terribly dangerous and I think much more dangerous than asbestos was, as bad as asbestos was. Thanks for your company. Australia's superannuation system could be in line for a significant shake-up, with the Treasurer warning the current settings may not be sustainable. Tax discounts on super currently cost the budget $53 billion a year, and Treasurer Jim Chalmers says by 2050 we'll spend more on concessions than the aged pension. So he wants to enshrine into law an objective for super to preserve people's savings for a, quote, dignity retirement in an equitable and sustainable way. Now, part of that could mean blocking working Australians from raiding their super savings, and that's got a few of them upset. In a moment, we'll hear from the Assistant Treasurer, Stephen Jones. But first, Catherine Gregory takes a look at the debate so far. When Anthony Spano's mowing business slowed down during the height of the pandemic, the sole trader dipped into his superannuation. Yeah, so it's eight, eight to 9000 Combined, you know, I've got family, family with kids and stuff like that. Needed to survive, really. So, um, just for the normal food, groceries and stuff like that. Mr. Spano was one of three million Australians who withdrew a total of thirty-six billion dollars from their retirement savings under the former Morrison government's emergency early access scheme. It allowed those people who'd lost their job or had reduced incomes to take out up to twenty thousand dollars. 35-year-old Mr Spano has no regrets. If anything, business keeps going well, then you know, whatever I, we've, we've taken out, we'll put back into the super. Would you take money out of your super again if you had to, to pay for things like bills or, you know, mortgage or rent? Well, with what's going on now with inflation and stuff, things are getting harder, especially like in, in small business. If things were a bit of a, a push, then yeah, I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. But it doesn't concern you about what might happen when you retire? Not necessarily, no, because uh, retirement's one thing to look at another, say, 30, 40 years. But what happens in the now, you know, if you lose your, if your predicament where you're going to lose your home and you can't feed your family? So he's not too keen that the opportunity could be taken away from him as the federal government considers overhauling the superannuation system. Treasurer Jim Chalmers criticises the early release scheme. Without consultation and little consideration, Australians were forced to choose between better incomes in retirement or paying their bills. Uh, our government will take a different approach. Mr Chalmers has released a consultation paper today inviting responses to his plan for legislating an objective for super. 
the main point being it should only be used in retirement. The objective of superannuation is to preserve savings and deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way. Mr Chalmers is flagging some changes to how super is structured so that it remains affordable in the future. Right now, we're on track to spend more on super concessions, tax concessions, than the age pension by around 2050. Now, I'm not convinced that that's a sustainable way to get to our destination. Currently, workers only pay 15% tax on additional earnings placed in superannuation, rather than their regular income tax rate. And superannuation returns are also taxed at 15%. The Opposition Financial Services spokesman Stuart Roberts says while the Coalition is all for enshrining a definition for super, it should be focused on what individual Australians want. The problem is the Treasurer is talking about his purpose for super. We're concerned more about the dignity of the individual. And what can be more dignified than an individual Australian owning their own house? And frankly, what can be more undignified than a super fund using your money to buy a house that you have to rent? So what does the $3.3 trillion superannuation industry think of the government's proposal? Bernie Dean is the chief executive of Industry Super Australia, which represents a group of industry super funds. It safeguards you know, the future of working people, but more importantly, it actually reflects what people out there on the street already understand as super's purpose, which is to generate savings that are preserved for their retirement. Bernie Dean points out that the government won't stop Australians who really need to access their super for certain things like medical bills. Rather, it would put limits on people accessing it for things like a deposit on a house. He hopes by enshrining this principle into law, future governments will have to stick with it and stop changing super policies that suit their respective political aspirations. We do know that the community is, is way past uh, wanting the governments to kind of regularly tinker with superannuation, except when it's about improving outcomes especially for women and for low-income earners. That's Bernie Dean from Industry Super Australia ending that report by Catherine Gregory. Well, the Morrison government policy allowing workers to dip into their superannuation savings certainly had its backers. Some argued it helped keep households and the wider community afloat, but others believe it recklessly drained the national pool of retirement savings. Nick Grimm asked people in Sydney how they'd like to see super managed. Superannuation, do you think it's a good idea to let people dip into it when they need it or should it be preserved until they retire? Yeah, I think it should be preserved because I don't think people can be trusted. You know, if the temptation is there to take it out early, they will and then they'll be caught short when it's really important. I think it's short-term pain for long-term gain. I think that, you know, if you want a lifestyle or to buy a house, you need to save up for it while you're working. I think they should be allowed to dip into it depending on the circumstance. What sort of circumstances do you have in mind? Uh, financial hardship would be one of them. You know, conversely, um, different investment opportunities, as in, you know, I'm thinking now I'd like to have taken it and got property and did it myself rather than, you know, have a fund manager do it for me, that sort of thing. Well, from personal experience, like, I've had to dip into my super a long time, a long time ago, but I only did it once, man, like, not repeatedly like some people have done. Definitely, because superannuation goes into, like, infrastructure, highways, all that sort of stuff, you know, so I think it's really important that um, it stays in, in the accounts, 
What about during the uh, pandemic, for example? Yeah, it was no, released then. No, no, that was a bit soft. Yeah, that was a bit soft, I think. People weren't actually at risk of being homeless or anything. They were just stuck at home being bored, mate. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think that was a bit soft. Great question. I think it's like a way of the government of like not actually taking responsibility of like actually helping people buy houses rather than being like, oh, you can just like use the money that's supposed to be for your retirement. Instead, it's the government. They're just saying that basically and potentially putting people out in the future rather than actually taking responsibility for the housing crisis itself. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a millennial and I'm seeing a lot of my friends that have been priced out of housing. Um, and the main factor to that is either the, the cost of the loan over the period, you know, loans versus the average income have increased so exponentially and people don't have any excess cash. And they, a lot of my friends are saying, well, why can't I use my super? They're gonna buy an appreciating asset. But on the same token, it probably puts more fire into the housing market that we've had a lot of problems with over the last sort of 20 years. So you can obviously see it from both sides, yeah. I, I suppose. But I guess for a lot of people, it is that question of, well, there's that great big pot of money sitting there. Why can't I use it to improve my future? Yeah, it's, it's a hard question. You know, my mum's my 65. She's a school teacher. She spent a lot of time outside the workforce um, having kids. And so her super's pretty low. But I, I see it as a, it's a problem because we can't have the entire generations like baby boomers and millennials that are now the biggest generation in Australia going onto the pension. It can't support, I don't think it can support that percentage of our population. So we've got to have a strong superannuation fund. We have to have a scheme that supports people in old age. Um, but I just wonder, you know, where do, how, you, how do you regulate, regulate people taking their money out of, out of superannuation? I, I'm not sure what the answer is. That's Sydney residents speaking with our reporter Nick Grimm. Well, Stephen Jones is the Assistant Treasurer and Minister for Financial Services. Stephen Jones, thanks for your time. I want to go straight to the words in the proposed statement on the purpose of superannuation, that savings should be preserved, quote, in an equitable and sustainable way. Now, is it equitable or sustainable for a few very wealthy people to have tens of millions of dollars in their super, reaping all the tax discounts that come with it? A blunt answer, no, it's not. And the superannuation system was never set up to provide some means of estate planning or tax avoidance or literally to put tens of millions of dollars away um, for purposes which might be about saving, it might be about um, tax minimisation, it might be about um, handing uh, an endowment on to a next generation, but it's not about retirement income. And superannuation is about saving for retirement income. And when you think about all the tax concessions that go into it, we simply can't afford anymore to have a system being distorted, if you like, by a very small number of Australians taking advantage of a system which is supposed to deliver a benefit to all Australians. One way to make it more sustainable would be a cap. And there seems to be some acceptance in the superannuation industry that $5 million in super would be a reasonable cap. Can you name any reason why you'd need tax concessions once you go beyond $5 million in super? Very good question, David, and we I have flagged that the government wants to look at that, but we think it's important to um, ensure we get these things in the right order. If we can get the, the nation to focus on the objective of superannuation, and if we all agree that the objective of superannuation is retirement income, retirement savings for retirement income, 
then I think we can all agree that somewhere between the $100 million um, balance that you talked about and something much more modest than that, you've mentioned $5 million, maybe it's there, maybe it's somebody somewhere higher, somewhere lower, but I think we can all agree um, that an account balance of $100 million or even $10 million is not about retirement income, it's about something else. So when can and- we expect some action on, on those those benefits? Well, that's why we want to have the conversation about the objective of superannuation first. And it's not just about those high, excessively high um, account balances. It's also about all the other ideas that get cycled through the policy debate every decade or so, whether it's housing, whether it's education, uh, whether it's healthcare, um, using superannuation as the magic pudding to solve every other policy failure is just not sustainable. The other parts of the proposed statement go to preserving a retirement income that is dignified. Now, what, what's your definition of dignified? I mean, is it dignified, uh, is the, the aged pension a, a dignified retirement income or does it need to be more than that? We think the age pension's a base, but I think the observation I'd make is whatever we think is sufficient for a dignified retirement today, we know that that's going to change over the course of the next decade. Because if you think back over the last decade or the decade before, broadband applications and mobile phones and a whole range of the services, telemedicine and um, uh, video-based health and health video, none of these things were seen as a a standard normal part of life, but today they are. And for the generation that's retiring over the next decade, their expectations are, are going to be much higher than the expectations of, you know, anybody over the last 30 years. So, I think when we're thinking about dignified, we're not just thinking about what we need today, but what we're going to need into the future and ensuring that the needs of future retirees are going to um, put such a pressure on the budget that is simply going to be unsustainable. Because words like dignified, equitable, they're subjective, right? I mean, that could mean that not only, as you say, our expectations will change, but whatever the government of the day you know, believes those words mean that they can they can change the policy to suit, can't they? That's true. But if I could take you back to the discussion you just had, um, you were talking about whether we should, or some people are suggesting we should uh, cap superannuation balances at $5 million. Well, where we stand today, the average Australian woman uh, is retiring with, or the median Australian woman is retiring with a superannuation balance of around about $120,000. The median Australian male, $180,000. That's a long way from $5 million. So somewhere between where we are and the sorts of caps that people are talking about lies dignity. I don't think it's for the Um, Australian government to prescribe each and every element of what might be a dignified retirement for one person and inadequate for another. I think we're a long way at the moment for having all of those things nailed down and we want to ensure that when we're setting our policy, it's fit for the future, not just the present, Um, which is why having that discussion around what we're trying to achieve through the system, dignified retirement, preserving savings, having a system that operates alongside government support, an important part of a conversation. Stephen Jones, thanks for your time. 
Good to be with you. And that's Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, how debt collectors pursued a mother for money she never owed. Dramatic evidence at the RoboDebt Royal Commission. The Northern Territory Indigenous community of Pepperminati has lodged a complaint with the Human Rights Commission, alleging they're being denied adequate policing based on their race. It comes after several shooting incidents, including one where a man was killed with a crossbow, as well as ongoing violence and threats across the community. As Jane Barden reports, traditional owners have rejected claims from authorities. The response has been adequate. Just 200 people live in Pepperminati, six hours drive from Durban, but it's been wrecked by four years of violence, including a fatal crossbow shooting in September. Two young men were shot and injured with firearms last month. There's a small group of locals who post images on social media of themselves carrying out attacks and threatening people. Anastasia Naya Wilson is one of Peppa Manati's traditional owner family who say they're being terrorised. She and her family are accusing the police of being too slow to respond to calls for help or not responding at all. I've been attacked and I got rocks thrown at me and um, um, suffered a wound on my left elbow where I had six stitches and I've been hospitalized. We got attacked by 30 young blokes running with machetes and crossbows and we had rape threats, murder threats. You've been asking for help from the police for a long time. What kind of response have you had? Sometimes you can wait for three days for them to come and see us. Several people, including Anastasia Wilson, have been intimidated out of their homes. Karl Lakarnovich's son was shot in the chest in a crossbow attack in 2020. His 36-year-old nephew, Mr Jones, was killed with a crossbow in September. And I've done statements to the police, told police this is going to happen. I was in the house ringing triple zero that night before he was killed. And they were yelling at, oh man, tell me outside, we're going to kill you. Oh, we're going to kill someone then. Five minutes later, the nephew's dead. Culturally, I'll call him son. A Queensland law firm, Levitt Robinson, has helped the community file a complaint against the NT police and the NT police minister in the Human Rights Commission. It alleges Pepe Minati is receiving a lesser service of policing based on residents' race. It says the police are trying to transfer responsibility for maintaining law and order to community members by asking them to resolve their disputes. Solicitor Dana Levitt. The community basically feels that if you look at other regional communities that might not be so heavy on Indigenous populations. They certainly have a police force that is effective and and present, whereas the community of Peppermanati, though on paper has two police um, deployed in the community at any time, it doesn't because police who are stationed at Peppermanati are often called off to attend incidents in other locations. The police have said in the past that they have attended dozens and dozens of calls for assistance. Have you really been able to come to the conclusion that the level of service is below par and below what a non-Indigenous community could expect? Absolutely. I think that if there is irrefutable evidence, as there is here, that points to the actual people involved in the violence, that you can identify those people and where that information is being provided in a very timely manner to police, their failure to act on it is, it's, it beggars belief. 
The NT police provided a statement saying all reported crimes against the person are responded to by police who undertake their duties without fear or favour. It said after the shootings last month, a contingent of officers came to restore order. But it said the force can only station two officers in the community because a lack of accommodation or infrastructure make it unsuitable as a permanent police station. The police have made a number of arrests and charged several people with violent offences. Dana Levitt's firm has represented several Indigenous communities who have felt over-policed. Usually we hear about police being ultra-vigilant, so vigilant that they are in and of themselves sort of going after the community. In this particular instance, it's been a completely hands-off approach. If the complaint is taken up by the Commission, it can order mediation. If it's rejected or mediation fails, the community can then consider court action. Dana Levitt's firm is representing another NT community, Wadair, in a class action alleging inadequate policing. And Alice Springs business people are planning another with similar allegations. One would think that the writing, so to speak, was on the wall. When any government is faced with a number of complaints that centre on basically the same thing, they have to pick up their game and make sure that they're doing more, not less. That's Solicitor Dana Levitt speaking with Jane Barden. The Royal Commission into the Commonwealth Debt Recovery Scheme is closing in on who knew what and when. The scheme known as RoboDebt was run by the coalition government from 2015 to 2019 with hundreds of thousands of welfare recipients wrongly accused of owing money. Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne were the ministers responsible for implementing the scheme and the inquiry has called staff members from their offices to find out if legal advice, which warned that the scheme was unlawful, was passed on to those ministers. Rachel Mealy reports. Felicity Button received the Centrelink Youth Allowance while she was studying nursing. Throughout her university years, she also worked part-time and casually in a number of jobs to help pay the bills. But years after she'd graduated and was in full-time employment, she received a letter from Centrelink telling her she'd been overpaid and now owed a debt. I had just just come off maternity leave and I was working... um casually as a registered nurse in an aged care facility and doing a bit of teaching. So I wasn't relying on Centrelink at that point. She called Centrelink and devised a repayment plan where money would be deducted from her account over time to pay off the debt. Then, months after that payment plan had been established, she tried to use her bank card at a doctor's office and realised something was awry. In 2017, my daughter had just turned one and she was extremely sick. So I took her to the doctors, turned out it was an upper respiratory infection and I went to go pay for the doctor's appointment and my card declined and I checked my banking app on my phone and $11,500 was overdrawn in my account. Debt collectors working for Centrelink had accessed her bank account and taken all of the money she owed at once. She called the debt collector to find out what had happened. And then I said to the lady on the the other end, well, maybe I should just drive my car off the road because I can't survive on no money. And I can't, sorry, and I can't. And I can't pay for my daughter's medication or doctor's appointment. 
The Royal Commission has heard that hundreds of thousands of welfare recipients like Felicity Button had been wrongly accused of owing money or their debts were calculated incorrectly. The question the Royal Commission is tasked to investigate is who gave the approval for the robo-debt scheme to proceed. Scott Morrison was Social Services Minister at the time the scheme was developed and put in place in 2015 and Maurice Payne was Human Services Minister. Maurice Payne's Chief of Staff, Megan Lees, told the Royal Commission her office did the preliminary work on the debt recovery scheme, but the main decisions were made by Scott Morrison's office. So by the time this brief B15125 goes to Minister Morrison, it is substantially abbreviated from the number of proposals that were first put forward to Minister Payne in B1539. Um, so you go through a process of refinement and understanding of options um, and this brief was prepared for the senior minister to decide which of those options he wanted to know more about, knock out of the mix or agree to continue to take forward. The Commission has heard that the government departments had received legal advice that the scheme was unlawful. Now questions are being asked of the minister's staff to find out if those legal questions were ever raised at a ministerial level. Rachel merely reporting. Artificial stone bench tops could soon become a thing of the past as calls grow to ban the product. Unions and medical experts warn it's the next asbestos because it can cause the deadly lung disease, silicosis. And now the nation's workplace health and safety ministers will meet to discuss a potential ban and a national response to the issue, Isabel Masali reports. As a coalition of unions launched a national campaign to ban engineered stone products, they wanted you to hear from people like Jo McNeil. She was working in admin at a quarry and later, during a routine health check, they found spots on her lungs and silicosis, a deadly lung disease caused by exposure to silica dust. As a mum, yeah, it's hard. That's what affects me the most because I am a single mum of two kids that are four and six. I want to be there for them because I don't know my future holds, I might be fine with my silicosis, but I might get, you know, a virus that sets off and then I get really bad pneumonia that I can't fight or, you know, my lungs aren't great. The CFMEU says if the government doesn't implement a ban by July next year, its members will refuse to install it. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet is pushing for national action. It's not new, but I think the, the gravity of this issue is no doubt um, there. Uh, and safe work has been actively engaged. But ultimate, ultimately, from my uh, perspective, there needs to be a national response and we'll work very closely with our federal counterparts to um, ensure that issues in relation to silicosis are dealt with appropriately. And it seems a national response may not be far away. In a statement, Federal Minister Tony Burke said he's put silicosis on the agenda for next week's meeting of workplace health and safety ministers. And one of the discussion topics is a potential ban on imported manufactured stone products containing silica, along with stronger regulations across all industries where workers are exposed. Health Minister Mark Butler was also asked today about banning the product. We're taking a very open mind to, uh, to this to make sure that we have the strongest possible response because, you know, we've been meeting with young people, middle-aged people, older people who have been impacted by, by this disease, and it's just shocking and tragic. Curtin University professor Lynn Fritchie is among the experts pushing for urgent action. 
She's an epidemiologist who specialises in work-related exposure. So asbestos um, produces terrible results as well. It produces um, the same like scarring of the lungs and lung cancer types, mesothelioma, um, and this it also does all of that. The problem with this one is it's occurring much more quickly. We have people who've been exposed for only a few years, say four years, and they're getting it in their, 90, in their 20s. So it's a much earlier condition. The best information we have is that between one in four and one in five people who have been working with artificial stone will develop silicosis. And that means it's terribly dangerous. And I think much more dangerous than asbestos was, as bad as asbestos was. Melita Markey is the CEO of the Asbestos Disease Society of Australia, which also represents silicosis victims. While she supports a ban, she believes the response must go further, including funding for medical research to find a cure and an approach to disposing of these products safely when the time comes, like renovations. Because we saw it with asbestos. We banned asbestos finally in 2003. It took about, we started in the 90s, but there was so much left in warehouses, so much in contracts. So even though we banned it then, it still took that long to get rid of it. And so again, it'll be a long lead time, even if we ban it today before it's fully implemented. And in that time, people are getting injured. So I would like to see a, a, a total strategy, a package. So we don't end up 30 years later with the products banned, but people still sick and suffering terrible diseases. They're really, they're awful. The Australian Stone Advisory Association said it was not in a position to respond today, but as previously said, it takes worker safety extremely seriously. Isabel Masali reporting there. And that's the program for today. Thanks very much for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports if you want to share them. And check out ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for your company. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. It's a year since Vladimir Putin started the war in Ukraine, a war that's taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, rocked security in Europe and shocked the global economy. Today, an update on where the war stands 12 months in and what to expect in the weeks ahead. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.